The funny thing about math is that a hundred million people taking a step towards self-improvement is still only one tiny step per person. But the impact is infinite. This is my conversation with Joe Templin. What if the truth came in a gel cap and we could just pop it in our mouths and forget about it? Well, it doesn't. And we can't. But we can laugh in the face of reality while plotting our survival. Welcome to the Truth Tastes Funny Podcast. I am your host, Hirsch Repman. And if my guests can handle the truth, so can you. Open wide, folks. Here it comes. I'm here with Joe Templin, human Kaizen expert, dedicated to self-improvement, to the improvement and continuous growth of all of us, and he'll tell us about his mission. He's also got uh, a number one new release on Kindle, and uh, Everyday Excellence is the book. It's a wonderful title. It's a wonderful concept. Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you, Hirsch. It's called Everyday Excellence. Because excellence is something that is almost untouchable, but but we can strive for. And it aligns with that Kaizen concept of continuous improvement. Because no matter how good we become, there's always more that we could be. And so it's this balance of being able to say, I'm enough. I'm good enough the way I am. I deserve love and you know to be happy and all that. But I can still be better. So tell us, Joe, how you became inspired to create a movement toward everyday excellence. So like many movements, there's not one moment or major influence on it. There's a whole series of things. So with the book, I had a goal of reaching the New York Times bestseller list and selling a certain number of copies, but I realized that was a very selfish goal. That was completely and totally me-oriented. That was based on my financials and what I wanted to accomplish and stroking my ego. And I was listening to Lewis Howes from School of Greatness, and he just released a uh, a whole bunch of new material and everything. And he was talking about how he wanted to reach a hundred million people this year. And I'm like, wow. Or actually every week he wanted to reach a hundred million people. I'm like, wow, that's an incredible goal. And the amount of positive change that that could generate. And so I'm nowhere near his level. So I'm like a hundred million a year. That is a nice BHAG, a big, hairy, audacious goal from Jim Collins, Good to Great. And so I'm like, all right, that is something that is just beyond my comprehension of doing. So it's going to force me to change my thinking. It's going to push me into the uncomfortable space of growth. It's going to make me change. It's going to make me reach out and develop new resources and tap into new people so that I can get out there and influence in a positive manner this many people. Because if I can reach 100 million people in the next 12 months and improve them in some capacity, they're each going to then improve their environment, their family, their workplace, their community. And so we could have a net impact uh, on a billion people. And that's 
motivating and cool. And it is an audacious goal. The question is, how do we know when it's working? How will we, how will we know when this is really catching on, this idea of improvement? It's not like a toy where you're trying to be, I want to sell a million units. You're selling right. a philosophy. And, you know, it's not like I can go to, like, you know, the app store and see, oh, 100 million downloads or anything crazy like that. But we can put it together in terms of pieces. So, for example, we'll be able to tell how many people listen to this podcast. And hopefully every single person that listens to this podcast gets some pearl of excellence that they can walk away with and improve their world with. And we can look at number of people who have read the various blogs on my website. So they're not purchasing anything. It's completely and totally me giving to the community. But we can look at the number of people who have done that. We can aggregate across all the podcasts that I'm on. We can look at the book sales and things like that. And it's not going to be an exact science, but... If we can blow right through that and say, hey, you know, we've reached 100 million downloads of the various uh, podcasts across all the different people that I've worked with, then we can be pretty certain we've reached that many people. And being able to measure those outputs and the changes that people have, again, is very difficult. But there's always these stories like when I did the presale of the book. Um, we sent out the initial 500 copies and a couple of weeks later, I get an email from a guy who I'd done some consulting work with from five or eight years earlier. And it's like, because of your book, I was working on a video game in my spare time that I was enjoying working on and it made me want to work on it harder. And I just released the, the MVP, the minimal viable product. And uh, another woman emailed me that she had stopped smoking from reading it. And so these anecdotes start adding up. And hopefully uh, it'll be like when Dr. Jordan Peterson goes and speaks and there's a line of people and, and they're telling them these stories about how their life has changed. I mean, I'll never be at that level. But if I can start collecting these stories and hearing these things, then I'll know that I'm doing the right thing in terms of helping other people out. And you'll also know if you start to hear the term everyday excellence be, become permeating, you know, the zeitgeist, and we start to hear that term, you know, because people catch it, terms catch on, nope. and that's a good one. Yeah, if I hear that or human Kaizen, then I know that we're having an impact. Human Kaizen from the Japanese concept of improvement. Kaizen meaning improvement in Japanese for those who, who may not know. You've done, a lot of, you've done a lot of things. I mean, you're a martial arts expert. You've done financial planning. You're a special needs parent, I understand, mm -hmm. and also an ultra marathoner. So yep. you, you've done so much in your life. Is this a lifelong pursuit that you've had to constantly improve, constantly develop? I think it is because, I mean, when I was eight years old, I told my mom I wanted to learn everything there was to know. And she's like, well, you better get cracking. The encyclopedia is over there. Get reading. And so that's the sort of attitude that I grew up with where if you say you want to do something big, it's like, all right, get to work. Let me help you. Let me give you a little bit of guidance around it. Where'd, so, you, uh, where'd you grow up? 
Uh, I grew up in upstate New York, so my hometown, Greenfield Center, did not have a traffic light until after I got out of graduate school. And it still flashes after 5 p.m., and it's on the corner with the town hall and one of the churches and the general store and the post office. And there's still dirt roads and all that. We did not have sidewalks or streetlights where I grew up, so when I was practicing for my driver's test, I had to parallel park next to a cow. Oh, my God. Is that for real? That's, that's for real. I can't make this stuff up. I mean, some of my friends are like, you're, you're like busting my stones template. I'm like, no, this is real. I don't need to make up stories because my life has just been so bizarre in so many ways. Well, take us through a little of that. So so let's let's jump ahead. What, what, what was the, you know, I understand the small town concept. What was your childhood like? So... My mom, the nun, yes, my mom was a former nun, uh, then turned to college biology professor. My dad was the first person in his family to uh, go to college. He won an Army ROTC scholarship, and basically right after he pinned on his butter bars, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis happened, so almost the end of the world. So then Vietnam. So that's the, the progenitor of it. Small town, as I said, farm kid. I'm the second of six uh, kids. My older brother is my Irish twin, uh, and I say he's my much older brother because he is yeah. 11 and a half months, but I'm bigger than him, and I have been since we were like 10 years old, so I get to rub that in. Right. Um, I, uh, I was severely, severely asthmatic growing up, so actually at 10 years old, I died. I got better. You died? Like you, yep. you, you, were, you were considered dead, pronounced dead? Uh, Yep, you know, I was flatlined, I was floating out of my body, looking down, bright lights, the whole nine yards. What do you attribute that that to the, the out-of-body death? It's not even a near-death experience, it's, a, it's an in-death experience. Yeah, it was dead, dead. What have you made of that, having actual experienced it? So it gives me faith in the future in a lot of ways, and I'm a man of science and faith simultaneously, which might seem weird, but... You know, it was perfectly logical, especially to somebody who's a physicist. And um, it. ever since then, I've basically burnt the candle at both ends and in the middle with a flamethrower, according to my friends. And so that's the reason why I'm like this, because we all only get 86,400 seconds per day. I don't care if you're Elon Musk or a kid getting out of college. We have the same number of seconds per day. And at the end of the day, they're gone. So you can't move them forward. You can't put them in the bank. You can't save them. You can just spend them, waste them, or invest them. And so I tend to invest as much of them as possible. And I look to multitask. You know, I say that I'm a Swiss Army knife. I try and get multiple use out of minutes. So, for example, I'm here in the office. I'm burning this podcast with you. My kid's in the next room right now. So as soon as I'm done with this, I'm going to shift gears. I'm going to be in dad mode for a little bit. But I'm also going to be reviewing uh, some other stuff simultaneously while I'm investing that time to grow and develop him. When I'm running or working out, I'm listening to audiobooks or podcasts. So I'm feeding my mind and spirit at the same time that I'm taking care of my body. I'll supervise homework while listening to an audiobook that the kids like to listen to, too, which is a nice thing that they picked up. And I'll be making dinner. So we're getting this multiplicity, so this way you can squeeze more out of the day, 
And I also have gotten very good at saying, no, there's a lot of things that I don't do simply because they are not additive in terms of making myself, my family, my career, my community better. And so people ask, oh, what's your favorite TV show? I don't even know the last time I turned on a TV. Yeah. The only reality TV I watch is the New York Yankees. And actually, I listen to the games on my phone so I can do other things simultaneously. Well, sports are easy, are, are one of the few things we can watch. And because we see it in real time with our own eyes, we may still actually believe the results. Whereas yep. we're watching news, depending on the source, trying to find a source, we don't believe any of that anyway. We, we, we have lost the concept of truth. And so, you know, sports is one of those things. We can, we can watch a boxing match or we can watch a football game or we can watch a tennis match. And presumably we're still seeing what's really happening. And that's kind of comforting, even if you're not super into sports. A lot of people would yep. say that multitasking can divide us in too many pieces so that mm -hmm. we're not really getting the most out of each activity. And so when I'm doing something that requires real focus, when I'm creating, I am not multitasking. So for example, every single day I sit down and I write and I have no distractions going on. There might be some light um, meditation music going in the background or uh, beach wave sounds to help put me in the right uh, frame, you know, to generate theta waves and break down the barriers between conscious and subconscious. That might be going on, but the phone's turned off. There is nobody else around. I, you know, the most distracting thing is the birds outside the window. And I just completely focus for that 20, 30 minutes that I'm doing that particular thing. If I'm recording stuff for my YouTube channel, phones turned off, doors closed, everything's shut out. So that for that 10 minutes that I'm doing that particularly intense task, that is literally all I'm doing. If I'm spending time with my kids and you know, they're having an issue or whatever, and so they need me, Phones turned off or put in another room, and I'm eye to eye. I am a hundred percent with them. So there, uh, like almost everything, there's this dichotomy of we can do multitasking and to do that very well in some spaces, and we need to be completely laser focused in other ones to be able to have the proper results that we need there. And it's learning which is which over time that allows you to develop your own unique style and capabilities because, you know, my ADHD is a superpower in some ways in that multitasking works for me in a lot of things. You know, I'm very audio focused, so I can actually listen to audio textbooks and be able to learn that way while I'm working out, whereas other people don't have that capacity. So their approach to uh, learning new information or getting new concepts has to be different. It is a tool-oriented approach. The multitasking is what you make of it. It, it can be a splintered experience where you're just distracted and easily distracted. I'm also easily distracted. That's why I love the mornings where everybody is still asleep, but me, because I can focus. And it's not even their fault. 
It's just the more opportunity there is to be distracted, the more easily distracted I I get. Absolutely. It's, you know, I have a saying, win the morning, win the day. So I get up and I use habit stacking like James Clare talks about in Atomic Habits. And I sit, grab my cup of coffee, turn on the coffee pot so that the new coffee's made while I'm consuming the half cup from the day before. Coffee's good overnight, by the way, as long as you don't put milk and crap like that. In it. <laughs> um, and I sit down and I write and dump out whatever was in my brain from sleeping. Then I read every single day. I read my own pages in Everyday Excellence and do the homework assignment associated with I read either the Daily Stoic or the Daily Laws by Robert Greene. So I read something like that. And then I go and I work out for a half hour. And typically that's running or martial arts. And then I sit down and I write again for anywhere between 15 minutes and 30 minutes because my brain was processing stuff while my body was waking up and moving. And it's a form of active meditation in a lot of ways. And so when everything that was in the brain and rattling around, a couple of good things come out. And from that writing time, I might have like two good lines that I want to keep. I might have five good pages you know it doesn't matter it's the habit of doing it every single day because if you practice the guitar every day you get better if you practice a foreign language like romanian every day you're going to improve if you work on your relationship skills or your sales language or anything consistently you're going to develop a much stronger skill set. And on the days you don't want to do it, you suck it up and you do it anyway. And that's where you develop your will set and you become stronger because you faced the, you know, the blues, the negatives, the, you know, uh, gravitational force sucking you down saying, no, you can just skip today. And as long as you don't give into that, you become much more powerful and you continue that streak. And that's one of the reasons for the design on the front of the book, that cool nonlinear growth curve. Because when you start doing anything, you're you're embarrassingly bad. I mean, I yeah. remember listening to my kids' um, grade school concert, and it sounded like they were strangling cats, or it was like a CIA torture experiment. And then when I went to his freshman concert a couple months ago, they're like out here, and in another couple of years, he'll be here as long as they keep with it. Were you honest with the kids about? Oh yeah, I uh, told them it was horrible because I mean I was a I was a trained cellist and with their level of proficiency, with everything we have two standards that I focus on because my kids are wicked smart. They're going to do really well in school no matter what. Okay, so like my kid aced his final. He didn't do his homework for a quarter, and I, they were going to fail him until he aced the final. And he's like, I passed. I'm like, dude, no, that's not right. So I made him do the summer school homework anyway. I care about two things, effort and attitude. And so I asked him, you know, he was telling me about a different test. And I'm like, tell me about your effort leading up to it. And did you have good attitude? And he's like, I had good attitude. You know, when I did what the teachers asked, I was helpful in class and all this. And I did actually did the homework and everything right along. I'm like, okay, good job. So when you and were he's like, you don't care about the grade. I'm like, no, I don't care about the grade. I care about the effort and the attitude because if those are good and you continuously and regularly do that, you're going to succeed. Those are great ways to measure accomplishment and start to train young minds to think outside of what society might prioritize 
or our and educational it's not system getting that might external prioritize. external validation. You don't need the BMW. You don't need the big house. You don't need the title or the promotion or anything like that. You need to have your own professional pride, your standards that you hold yourself to. And that will continuously make you better. So it, well, my one son's a runner. It's like, okay, are you doing your practice? Are you doing your stretching? Are you doing the things that you should so that you can become a better runner overall? Yes or no? It's that simple. You know, my other son is a martial artist. Are you practicing? Yes or no? Because if you practice, if you do it, you will improve and you will get as good as you want to be ultimately. So when you were, when you were at nine and you had this, and you died at nine, mm -hmm. what, what were things like before that happened and what were things like immediately after that? So um, being one of six kids, I mean, and my dad traveled for work. He uh, was a consultant running his consulting firm. So basically my mom literally ran the show with all six of us. It was a six-string circus. Um, and there were four boys and two girls and three boys in a row at the older end of it. So it was absolute chaos. And so, um, beforehand, you know, my mom was always doing the best she could. We always had cousins and aunts and uncles around that were helping out because we lived out in the country. So, I mean, my cousins were at my place all the time and my mom, uh, because my cousins were in high school was always tutoring them and helping them out. So I was always exposed to, Education. I'm my cousin Kate, who later became the head science teacher at my high school, said that when I was like four years old and she was studying biology, I was walking around the table singing deoxyribonucleic acid, <laughs> and she wanted to just like hit me with a book. So we were always encouraged to pursue what interests us. We were always encouraged to study. Uh, my mom realized when I was about three years old that uh, when my brother or I got in, were actually getting in trouble on purpose because we'd be sent to our room and that's where the books were. So she started like having us sit on the stairs and to me, like with my hyperactivity, that was like the worst thing in the world, sit, trying to sit still for a couple of minutes. Yeah. So I started behaving better. But that was your version of misbehavior was to get sent to your room so you could read more. Yes. Yeah. You make the rest but, of us know, look very, very badly behaved. Well, and, my mom uh, also taught me how to hotwire a car, how to shoot a gun, uh, how to distill alcohol. So, you know, my mom wasn't exactly the choir girl. I mean, she was a farm <laughs> kid, too. So we had all these skills that have come into play later on in life when I was an intel officer or just being able to take care of the stuff on my own. So that's what it was like, was we were encouraged to pursue what interests us. You know, she bought me the bug jug. She uh, helped me build a laser when I was like 8, 10 years old. You know, she encouraged us to do things and art was one of the things that she encouraged unfortunately i have no artistic ability unlike my brothers and sisters so that's why i don't say i'm a renaissance I man i don't know where you yeah i don't know where you would find the room to squeeze in art i know if you could you would but it's maybe a good thing for you that that it that it's you're not tackling that too there's so well, much that's why that i write poetry i mean on, yeah. there on the shelf behind me you can see uh, five or six of the poetry books that I've released under a nom de plume. Ah, 
Okay. And what are the, what are they what are the poetry books like? Oh, that's all love poetry. Uh huh. And how long have you been writing poetry then? Um, I really got back into writing poetry about uh, a couple of years ago, three years ago maybe. But I mean, I've written right along. So when I started college at thirteen, because my parents said twelve was too young to start college, I actually was focused on communication and writing. Because I was so hyper advanced on the math science side already, I was doing high school, college level uh, mathematics and science at age ten. I think at twelve is when I designed my atomic bomb, uh, <laughs> and I'm serious. I and know my you're mom, serious, the, Joe. I'm... My mom, the former radiation biologist, I'm like, hey, can you give me some uranium? And she's like, why? And I explained, and she's like, no. Well, now I wonder. Now I wonder, I know there should be more books. Well, did you do an autobiography? Did you write an autobiography? No, because that would seem to be a a ripe kind of uh, source material or a biography of your mom, which... (laughs) That would be cool, a biography of my mom. So, you know, I used to say my autobiography was actually the movie Real Genius, Oh, Val Kilmer. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that was, you know, I was, I was a high op energy optical physicist working on stuff like that. And when I went to nerd camp with Hopkins and then RPI, that's what my friends were like. Okay. But I do want to get an answer to this one question so we can kind of keep moving through your life. Cause it is fascinating. So Give me just a little more insight into this incident at nine and then what what it triggered for the rest of those formative years, just to get a little better understanding of how you evolved. One of the things that it triggered was, like, my mom had been a lifeguard. Everybody in my family swam. In fact, I'm the only one who's not a lifeguard, basically. Um, but... Johnny Weissmuller, the former yeah. Olympic gold medalist who ended up playing Tarzan, he was a severe asthmatic as a child. And his family made him, his doctors made him take up swimming to help his breathing and counter that. And so Johnny Weissmuller was one of those people who I was always fascinated by and studied, as well as Teddy Roosevelt. And you can see my over my shoulder here. I got good old TR up there Mm -hmm. Um, because Teddy Roosevelt was a scrawny asthmatic kid and his father told him, Theodore, you have the mind, but not the body. And so uh, Theodore Roosevelt's doctors actually prescribed whiskey and cigars to make him stronger and physical activity. Mine didn't give me, give me those things. Uh, But they, uh, even though I could barely run, I mean like running around you know, 50 yards, I would be bent over, wheezing, almost unable to breathe. But I did it. And then I went a little bit further and then a little bit further. And that 50 yards became 500 yards. And um, I also started Taekwondo when I was 11 years old. And so by the time I was 12 or 13, I was actually starting to run cross country. I was a horrible runner. I was the slowest runner in the group, but I was able to do the miles. 
And then I uh-huh. uh, started playing volleyball and I, w- I stopped running cross country, but I was really getting involved in Taekwondo and these other things. And I came back to running later on as cross training for my martial arts in college. And I did it to help supplement it. But then, uh, I said I was going to do my first marathon before I turned 30 because if I didn't do it by then, I probably would never do it. So I did my first marathon a month before my 30th birthday. And then I did another one a year later. I said, okay, I'm never doing another marathon again in my life. This sucks. You know, it's too long to go. All the training, the sacrifices, I'm tired. I'm always hungry, always hungry. But then a bunch of my buddies from high school called me about seven years ago and they're like, hey, Templin, you know, you want to do something crazy? I'm like, yeah. So they're (laughs) like, we want you to do a Ragnar with us. Yeah. And I'm like, what the hell is that? It's like, oh, it's a 200-mile team relay race where you sit in a van and you get Stockholm Syndrome and you run and then you sleep on the floor someplace and then you run some more and it's absolutely nuts. I'm like, dude, I'm in. So I did my first one with my buddies from high school um, and my friend Dave Tamburo, who's a former Olympian for the United States short track speed skater, called me two weeks later. He's like, dude, I, I had this weird dream. We were in a van and we were running through the Adirondacks. I'm like, no demand. That was real. And so I then joined another running team. I've now done like 20 of those. And during COVID, when everything got closed down, we started doing crazy things so we wouldn't go insane. So we did like a beer mile, which was actually two years ago today. It popped up in my feed. And we did like a midnight moon run. And then we did virtual Ragnars. We were mailing the stuff back and forth. Um, And then we were like, hey, let's do a backyard ultra. So we'll start at 9 a.m., and you run one, two, or three miles for that hour. And the next hour, you do it again. Next hour, you do it again. And we'll do it for like, you know, 10 in, hours and have in some In your fun. backyard? Well, they call it backyard. Or around ultras, your neighborhood? Around your neighborhood and stuff like yeah. that. So I ran around the neighborhood. And, you know, for some reason, I thought we started at 5 a.m., not 9 a.m. And I committed to three miles uh, per hour. So, you know, after like eight hours, uh, everybody else is like, oh, okay, we're done. This is boring. It's, you know, 90 degrees out. It's hot. And I'm like almost 35 miles into it. I'm like, you know what? I'm over a marathon. I didn't realize that. I'm going to keep doing this. I'm going to see how many hours I can do this for. And I got to 40 and I'm starting to really lose it mentally and physically because it's the furthest I've ever gone. I'm like, I'm going to stretch this out to a double marathon because two negatives make a positive from mathematics point of view. And so if I do two marathons in a day, technically I didn't do a marathon and it's okay. And so that was my bizarre rationale. And so I actually did a full double marathon that day. And when I was getting to like mile 40, I was losing it mentally and physically. I was down to, you know, running on fumes emotionally. And one of my friends called me and she was having all sorts of difficulty. And so I spent the next 12 miles focused on trying to help her and solve her problems, not on how badly my legs hurt and how every step hurt. And I was starving and I had no energy and my mind was going weird places. I was almost delusional. So I spent basically the next two hours on the phone with her helping her. And that got me past mile about 50. And then it was from there, it was just sheer guts finishing it. And after I did, I'm, I'm there in the shower 
and peeing a little bit of blood as normally happens and, you know, drinking a beer. And I'm like, you know what, if I actually were smarter about this, if I planned ahead, I could go further. So six months later, I actually did a hundred kilometers and I did that in two plus hours less than I did the 52 miles. I was actually training for 125 in April when I broke my leg. So I'm just uh, really recovering from that. But I'm going to do uh, something called the hamster wheel in November, which is a four-mile loop. You just keep doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it for 24 to 36 hours. So even after all of that, the end result is you end up in the shower peeing blood and drinking a beer and... That happens to people who are not in nearly as good shape as you are, and it even probably happens to some of the people who subscribe to the Teddy Roosevelt uh, regimen of whiskey and, and cigars. They might also end up in the shower just, just drinking a beer and, and p- pissing blood, but, but you've accomplished way, way more than they have by the time you end up in that bloody shower. That's the, that's the definitive uh, uh, difference. I'm glad I'm not your workout partner. I think if uh, I think for your sake and mine, that would be it would it would be good for a while. But oh, you'd hate me when I'm like you know calling you four thirty in the morning. Come on, let's go, let's go, let's go. Yeah. So yes, I am too much in a lot of ways. I've been told this by people. I am too much, uh, yeah. but I'm not going to you know throttle back. No. And now, are you married? I am divorced. Probably uh, okay. because of this. Well, you know, I ask because it's because it is. Uh, you know, first of all, I was married. I'm currently married, but I was. I also was divorced from my first wife, and I think that finding a uh, a partner in life that you can act, that can actually tolerate you. And vice versa is a really, really unique challenge. I, I think while there are many, many people who are who are married, I think it's very hard. It's challenging. She traveled for work for seven or eight years before COVID hit. So she was on the road five days a week, uh-huh. three weeks out of the month. Uh, I was basically solo raising the kids. And so she didn't see what it took to be a special needs parent because she wasn't around for it. And she didn't see the stress and I see. You know, the juggling of the three kids and getting three them to three different activities every single day in different places, every single day of the work week, plus trying to work, plus trying to do all the other stuff. So when COVID hit and all of a sudden we were all in the same space for several months, she's like, no more. We're done. We're done. I can't deal with this. Yeah. Well, that's very different even from the stuff that we're talking about all the way leading up to this, because I imagine that a lot of families during COVID were sorely, you know, tested and, and um, disrupted and forced to analyze their compatibility in a way yeah, that we they might not have been spike in otherwise. We saw almost a 50% increase in divorces, and there were two distinct groups that saw major jumps in divorces. There were the relatively newly married, the people in their first year to 18 months of marriage, who were still getting in the acclimation stage of, okay, you know, we're married, we're living together, you know, you go to your work, I go to my work, we get together, and all of a sudden they couldn't escape from each other, and they hadn't 
develop the tolerance for each other and the foibles that the other have, that is something that you develop over time in a, in a relationship, in a marriage. So we saw a huge spike among those recently married. And then the other huge spike was the ones like me, 20 plus years. Because, mm-hmm. you know, all science, like, you no longer have the escape of work to get away to. You know, the, very often there were kids, especially like teenage sort of kids like I had, who were in the environment also. And so you've got all these different stressors and no way to relieve the pressure. And the coping mechanisms that many people had, whether it was family or their friend support systems or their uh, groups going to church or uh, synagogue, so their spiritual outlet, you know, going to their gym, all that disappeared simultaneously. Yeah. So that's the reason why we saw those yeah. spikes in those two distinct groups. Another group that was really hurt was like my kid, the special needs child. So all of a sudden they lost Cub Scouts, which was a support group for them. They lost their martial arts, which gave them structure and physical activity and focus. All of a sudden everything's on the screen for school, which provides a different set of physical, uh, stimulate visual stimulations and distractions around it. And, you know, they, every bit of structure was suddenly torn away. And so those kids with autism or ADHD or both like mine ended up suddenly being cut free and they struggled during that. And we're going to see some impact from this uh, pandemic in terms of the ecological issues for the next 10 years, minimum. Yeah, I think we've, we've hardly scratched the surface on what the residual effect will be for kids both, you know, on the spectrum and just, you know, kids that are um, that are not, you know, neurodiverse in any way. It just, it's, it's going to be reverberating for some time well, to come. Little, little kids, ones who are just learning to speak and just learning socialization, they get a lot of their cues from observation, from looking at the mouth of other individuals seeing the smile and that feedback. And that was taken away from an entire generation. And so we're going to see probably another three to five years, the difficulty acclimating and uh, in terms of socialization from that cohort because of the changed feedback mechanisms that they had to deal with early on. So how does, to to bring it back around now, um, I'm respectful of your time because uh, you've had a long day so far and you're still I'm going. I'm having fun, though. This is a great conversation. It is. It is fun. I'm really glad, Joe, that you're enjoying it because so am I. So to circle back around to the mission, if you apply your mission of uh, Kaizen to today's world and what some of these younger people and adults are struggling with in the wake of this pandemic. How, what, what is a kind of a direct effect that you can see on this? If this movement were to take hold, how would it help? How would it help some of the more immediate uh, issues we face? So one thing is that we saw a lot of people physically deteriorate 
during COVID for a number of reasons. One, because they lacked physical touch, so they're not getting the oxytocin and feedback mechanisms, things like that. But a lot of people put on the COVID-19, which is worse than the freshman 50. You know, you see all these people who are growing the apocalypse beard and, you know, they got used to doing Zoom meetings while wearing pajama bombs and all this. So it's getting back to some of the personal standards. So if somebody put on weight during the pandemic, developing a plan, a daily approach to start undoing that. Whether it's, okay, I'm going to start going back to the gym. I'm going to start walking every single day. I'm going to, you know, take time to, you know, uh, actually going for a walk while talking on the phone to a friend is a great way to be able to get some of that social connection going again while still getting the physical activity in. Um, Eating healthier because... If you look at Uber Eats and Grubhub and the delivery services, I mean, they've gone absolutely spectacular because everyone was shut on in. I'm surprised that people didn't take the time during COVID to learn how to cook. Because I yeah, mean, well, some restaurant, did. Some, some did. I mean, like yeah. my best friend's now doing a lot more cooking. But it's things like this. It is saying, okay, this area of my life, uh, if you look at it like we're juggling balls and we've got physical health, mental health, career, family, all these different balls that we're juggling, you know, I dropped this particular ball. And being able to, to say, all right, what do I need to do to be able to get that back into me? And one thing it, that I recommend people do is do a little bit every day. So as a martial artist, we talk about mind, body, and spirit. And so every single day I work on my mind, I work on my body, I work on my spirit, whether it's praying or meditation, whether it's, you know, I'm listening to audiobooks or podcasts, I'm doing research, I'm reading long form books, you know, I work out every single day. You don't have to go to the extremes. If you can get five, 10 minutes of each of these components every single day and make it a habit, it's a small habit, but it's a habit, then you start changing your mental makeup. You start changing your identity from a fat guy to somebody who works out regularly. You start changing your identity from a smoker to a non-smoker. You start changing your uh, how you look at yourself from being somebody that's lazy to somebody who actually does things. And so it, doing it on a regular basis for a couple of weeks, every single day, even as I said, if it's three to five minutes, is enough to start reprogramming your reticular activation system and to start making you identify as a better version of yourself. And then it, it, once you've, as Peter Thiel's book is entitled zero to one. That's an infinite jump. That's the biggest leap going from doing nothing to doing five minutes every single day is the hardest part going from five minutes to 10 minutes, even though it's doubling the amount of activity, that's easy by comparison. And so, you know, you go from zero to five, then you go from five to 10, then a couple of weeks later you get to 15. And if every couple of weeks you just add a couple of minutes consistently on this in two months, suddenly you're doing a half hour, 40 minutes every single day of feeding your mind and taking care of your body and doing what you need to do to be spiritually or however you want to put it, you know, aware and a better interactor. And after two months of doing that, everybody else is going to notice 
how much of a better version of you you are. And you'll even notice, and it because the change has been so small but continuous, you can keep doing it, and it feels good, and you're getting the positive feedback loop going. And so that's why I'd recommend is start small, the smallest thing that you can commit to every single day, and just do that. Is there such a thing as a plateau in this process? Absolutely. You know, because, like, I was on a fitness, a uh, walking app about four or five years ago called Carrot. It was out of Canada, and they completely changed it a few years ago. But if you hit your walking goal consistently, they would keep raising it. So my daily goal, my daily step goal, got to 25,000 steps a day. And it's like, that's like a mailman. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, you can plateau on that and you need to remember sometimes you need rest. And rest is different for different people, but there should be no goose eggs. So maybe you're to the point where you're like studying for the bar exam, as an example. You know, that a really intense process of studying to succeed and you're studying 10 hours a day. You know what? Maybe you take a half day and then go for a hike in the afternoon. So you're not doing as much, but it's enough to let your body recover some. You know, so like my off days from uh, running and things like that, I'll still go and I'll still do 16,000 steps in a day. I'm just not running six miles. I'm not, you know, hammering myself. So my rest day is not necessarily a full rest day. Just like, you know, if you're going to work um, on your spiritual side, you don't completely take a day off and, you know, go to Vegas and, you know, uh, do all sorts of things and break all Ten Commandments in a day. That's (laughs) not what rest means. But you know what? You don't have to push yourself that hard that particular day. And resting occasionally allows your body to recover. I mean, I am pretty strict about my diet for the most part because I have to be at this point, but I still have a cheat day occasionally. And like on my cheat day in last month fell on national donut day. I love donuts. Nice. So I had nice. 10 Boston cream donuts that day. Oh my God. Well, that is, it was awesome. For the record, Joe, that is how most people do Vegas, which is to break all 10 commandments in 24 hours. That's kind of the nature of that of that particular city, but that isn't necessarily the best way to rest. Uh, yeah. What is your sleep regimen like? So um, I've never been a big sleeper. And in grad school, I actually did polyphasic sleep. So I would work for seven hours and sleep for 45 minutes and do that six days a week. And then I'd sleep about three, four hours at pop the other night. Um, and that helps for doing Ragnar and startups. And when you have your know, brand new babies, that's basically the way that you are. I actually, my normal sleep pattern is that I'm in bed by 1030 at night and I'm up at 4 a.m. Uh-huh. So yeah. it takes me probably a half hour to fully get to sleep. I wake up at one point during the middle of the night because most people actually have a two-sleep uh, cycle pattern. So I'm averaging probably four and a half to five hours most nights. Um, on the weekend, I'll take a half-hour nap, maybe, if I have time. But I, one of the things that I do is when I sleep, I sleep. When I work, I work. And I 
also uh, about halfway through the day, you know, probably one, two o'clock typically, I will take a 10 minute break that's scheduled into my work day and I will just uh, basically close my eyes, meditate for five, 10 minutes. And that allows me to completely recharge the battery to get through the last half of the day. I, I do that too. And I've been doing that about for about a year. And what it started when I started getting up at five or five thirty. now it's kind of more like six. But when I started getting up early, I would find myself really literally falling asleep at my computer mm-hmm. around 11.30 or, or noon, like sometime before lunchtime, and I would take a 10-minute nap. I just set the timer for 10 minutes. I actually put on the Headspace app for uh, meditation. Good Real good thing. But I, yep. but I fall asleep because I, I know I'm going to need that, but it helps me. Then I pop my eyes open and I'm like, okay, let's go. Let's go. And, you know? and you're, yeah. you're more productive for doing that and so your net output actually grows so kindergartners take a nap in school or yes. right when they get home and it works because look how hard you know a four or five year old goes they go full speed ramming speed and then it's dead stop and then they wake up and go again so literally you're learning you know, what was the Fulton book I think it was called everything I need to learn I learned oh, in kindergarten I, I learned in kindergarten yeah yeah, so run full speed, stop, take a quick nap, a power nap, and go again. Yeah. I think if we can get ourselves into the the, 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 the thin point you made about the first step being the hardest is really on point because the hardest thing was kicking myself in the ass to get up early. The easy part was figuring out that I needed the 10-minute nap. The 10-minute nope. nap didn't require effort. It was just, okay, that makes perfect sense. And I felt a little bit guilty at first because this was also during the you know during uh, lockdown and COVID and all that where everybody's on top of each other. And I felt like, oh, my wife's working and I'm taking a nap, you know, and I felt a little of that, of that shame of uh, sleeping during the day, like I'm goofing off. But I realized the 10-minute nap is a small price to pay for the productivity of getting up and doing another two hours of work in the morning or an hour of uninterrupted work, which is right. even which is more the valuable. Equivalent of three hours of disrupted yeah. work. And the other thing was, you know, because you took that nap, you were no longer a grumpy SOB probably around her. And so you were a better I person. Yeah. And so, you know, that's one of the reasons why, you know, the kids being a jerk, you know, go lay down for 10 minutes. And, you know, they they do it and then, you know, they reset themselves and they recover and they're better from it. And so everybody's happier. So, you know, we say that self-care is not something that you should be guilty about. That's self-care, but it's also making sure that the family unit is functioning better by you taking that couple minutes away. That's the reason why people should take some time away from their kids or away from their spouse every once in a while just to go depressurize on their own. And when they come on back the next day, they appreciate each other even more. You were basically doing that on a, a daily basis on a smaller subset, but that's the sort of thing. That's why people take vacations to get away from their normal reality. 
is yeah. to do that. And then they come back and they appreciate their work and they're more focused and they're more productive. Same thing. As Miyamoto Musashi says, yeah. from the whole, know the pieces, from the pieces, know everything. Yeah, because the uh, the concept of the vacation in your mind of a, you know, a five-minute vacation in your mind, a 10-minute vacation, that's another great concept because we can rejuvenate ourselves and we shouldn't expect anything less from our from our kids that they need to rejuvenate as well. And uh, I think if you're going to reach the... What is the goal? Tell me your goal again. 100 million people that make some positive change in their life because of the work that we're doing. Of the work that you're doing. So 100 million people. And if you're going to reach those people, we're going to need to see more of you because your energy is clearly what what drives this. I'm inspired after talking with you. Uh, it's, it is so much fun, as you said, but it's also so necessary. I think your mission is so noble and so wonderful, and I'm sure it will be impactful. We're going to certainly do our part on the show to get the word out and try to impact as many people as we can. And it's all of our little steps combined. I, you know, we don't need to reach a hundred billion people from one show. We, As it, you know, Saitium says, well-being is no small thing, but it's made up of small steps. So these little steps of this conversation and your listeners hearing this and maybe discovering another piece and sharing it, that all goes to helping make a better world. And, you know, the name of the show is Truth Tastes Funny, and hopefully I gave some truth but also I was at least slightly amusing so that people get some laughs because when people laugh, actually, it lowers their cortisol levels. It makes them healthier. It makes them more creative and intelligent, and they retain more information for the next 15, 20 minutes. So hopefully I got some people to laugh a little bit so that they can get some stronger takeaways. And, you know, maybe they request that I come on back at some point. Yeah, exactly. I'm confident they did because... Uh, because I feel lighter as a result. I feel more energized. Awesome. And, uh, and I think that's it. The best kind of contagion is what you're selling, really. A journey of self-discovery and enlightenment and happiness, not a chore that we have to do. We just have to get off our ass and do that first thing. Hirsch, my friend, thank you. Be excellent and grow today. Thanks so much for tuning into Truth Tastes Funny. If you enjoyed the experience, please leave a five-star review and share this podcast with your friends.